Before we get started, I just want to remind you a little bit of the difference between Greek and Hebrew thought. Most of you have been in here when we covered this, but the Western thought, the, the Greek thought, was very uh, oriented around mental concepts, definitions, getting the information. In fact, uh, I had a conversation earlier this morning with somebody who has not been to SWAT in a while. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, I, I have several guys that have not come in a long time. And they say, oh, I like just hearing the teaching. That's very reminiscent of Western thought. And it's very representative. I mean, not reminiscent, but representative of Western thought. It's very representative because it's about information. For the Hebrew, it was about community being together around the Word. It was not just getting the information, it was the community getting the information together so that they could be like the teacher. Because if you just get the information and there's no community, then a lot of times there's no accountability. And without accountability, then you don't put it into action and you don't shema, you don't hear that produces an action, you just get information and then you bring more responsibility into your life because you're not implementing it in your life. But for the Hebrew, it was really important for them to have community. And the rabbi served as a go-between between God and his word and the Shema or the hearing and the applying of that word in, in the world. So Jesus functioned in that capacity. And so he told stories. We, we saw last week he told parables. 70% of the, the, the Bible is story. And Jesus told somewhere between 30 and 40 parables. And those parables were always used to, to interpret the truth and then to apply the truth for the disciples. And the way they did that was they used story like that. And it's a very Eastern thing. In fact, in the Middle East, if you offended me, Chuck... I wouldn't come up to you like I do here and say, hey, what you did really bothered me. What I would do is say, Chuck, let me tell you a story. There was a man who had a dog. And that dog, you know, and then he would go into a story. And as I'm telling you that story, you're listening to hear what part you play in that story. Because I'm trying to tell you something, but I do it in, in a story format. That's the way Jesus taught. So the disciples were always listening. The Jewish people, hopefully, were always listening to hear where they were in the story. And we saw last week in the story of forgiveness that the disciples were the ones who had been forgiven much, who were not forgiving much in their thought process because they wanted to limit how many times they forgive. And we saw these two principles of, one, we need to pursue Forgiveness with a passion and understanding. And we got that from Lamech, that Old Testament Genesis, seventh generation guy out of the, the line of Adam under Cain, Adam and Cain on down to Lamech, who said, if somebody kills Cain, he's avenged seven times. If they kill Lamech, because I've struck a man, 77. And what God was saying there, we need to have the same passion to forgive that Lamech had for vengeance. That's what he was instructing. They would have known that. We look at that passage and we don't get that from that. Because the phrase can be translated 77 or 70 times 7. Either way, what he's saying is you don't limit forgiveness. The other thing is he told them that story to talk about them practicing that. Actually going to do it. It was an exhortation. 
You've been forgiven much, now go do it. And I think part of the issue for us is we really don't think of ourselves as that bad. We don't think of ourselves as worthy of hell. We're pretty good guys. We come to Bible study. You know, we, we, we do good things. Oh, we may have made mistakes in our life, but do you realize that one, one disobedient act to God, just one, makes you worthy of hell? Because James says if you do one, it's like doing them all. And I think we forget that. And Jesus was reminding His disciples about that. Well, what's going on today in today's passage in Matthew 19? By the way, I was going to try to do the whole thing, 1 through 12, and it's just too much. I mean, you go to, it's only 12 verses, but yeah, it's too much. Right? It's dealing with the concept of God's view of marriage, which is huge, and then God's view of divorce, which is again huge. And then God's view of celibacy, which in itself is huge. So instead of dealing with all of it today, we're going to deal with the first part, just his view on marriage. I want you to think about this question. Has my view of marriage been more influenced by God or the culture around me? Not what you think, what you do. Not what you want it to be, but what you actually practice in your life. There was a guy named Dr. Armand Nicoli. He was a psychiatrist and a medical doctor at Harvard University. So this guy was not a lightweight. He was at Harvard Medical School. You're not a staff member there if you're a lightweight. I'm just telling you. So he wrote an article back in the 70s. So this is over 40 years ago. And this is what he said. Certain trends prevalent today will incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity, cause its member to suffer such crippling emotional conflicts that they will become an intolerable burden to society. If any one factor influences the character development and emotional stability of an individual, it is the quality of the relationship he or she experiences as a child with both parents. And he underlines the word both. Conversely, if people suffering from severe non-organic emotional illness have one experience in common. It's the absence of a parent through death, divorce, etc. A parent's inaccessibility, either physically, emotionally, or both, can profoundly influence a child's emotional health. What he's saying is that most people who have non-organic that is, they're not, it's not physically, uh, not because of some physically induced illness, but they have some non-organic emotional problem, share a common denominator. It is a wrong relationship in their childhood to their parents. And he goes on to suggest that if we come up with a society without families, we will have such mental and emotional monsters in the next generation that there will be no way possible for society to cope with them. He further says, what has been shown to contribute most to the emotional development of a child is a close, warm, sustained, and continuous relationship with both parents. Yet certain trends in our society make this most difficult. You know what the number one factor he says is in that? Divorce. The number one cause of the emotional problems in the lives of the next generation is divorce. 
The trend toward a quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more and more children to physically and emotionally absent parents. This is back in 1970. He says the divorce rate has risen 700% in this century, in the 70s, 40 years ago. And it continues to rise. Back then, there was one divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Over 1 million children a year were involved in divorce cases. And 13 million children under 18 have one or both parents missing. He goes on to conclude that as far as the future, what can we expect if this trend continues? The quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness than ever before. 95% of the hospital beds will be taken up by mentally ill people. The illness will be characterized primarily by a lack of self-control. We can expect the assassination of people in authority to be frequent occurrences. Crimes of violence will increase, even those within the family. Suicide rates will rise. Sexuality will become more and more perverse. That's happened. Yeah. Uh, prison, 80%, 80% men in prison did not have a man in the house. 80 So, this guy was right on target. You know, people were asking her today, how could a guy go into a, a, a bar and just shoot 12 people? How could he do that? You know, that, that question has been asked so many times in the last few years. How could this person do that? A, t a, a teenage boy down in South Florida living with a single mom gets so angry at her that he strangles her over a grade. I think I shared that with you guys last week. Oh, he got a D in a class and she got on to him and he strangled her to death. That, that, this, this epidemic that we're experiencing today, this guy predicted it back in the 70s because it, he traces it back. And the reason it's important is because God's nucleus, his basic cell in a community is a marriage and a family. And what was going on here is Jesus leaves Galilee. He's leaving Galilee because he's, he's basically said, okay, I've done my ministry here. He's going to Jerusalem. This, is mar this marks one of the last chapters for Matthew. As Matthew's been unfolding this story, he says from that time on, which means he's leaving Galilee. He goes to this area called Beyond the Jordan. It's the Perea area. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a Gentile and Jewish area. They've got some Jews, but it's a lot of Gentiles there. And as he's doing that, these Pharisees come up to him and they ask him a question about divorce. And the reason they ask him, it says, is to test him. What they're trying to do, they're not testing him to see if he's true or not. They're testing him to trick him. Their purpose is to basically... The, the popular teaching in this particular group of the Jews of that day was that you could divorce your wife for any reason and every reason. If you didn't like the way she looked, if you didn't like the way she cooked, it didn't matter. You could divorce her. That was from a guy named Hillel. 
Hillel and Shammai were the two great influencers of Jewish thought at that time. You had groups of people that followed one type of teaching. Uh, Shammai was more conservative, more legalistic. And then you had Hillel who was more progressive and tended to have a little bit more liberal view. Well, Shammai said the only reason you could divorce was because of adultery. Hillel said the only reason you could divorce was because of whatever you wanted. <laughs> so there really was no limits there. And, but that was the popular view. Why do you think that was a popular view? Because the men wanted to do what they wanted to do. If they wanted another woman, they wanted to be able to get it. So of course it was popular. Why is homosexual marriage legal in America? Because that's a popular people want to be able to do. They don't want to call anybody to any kind of biblical standards. I got a question for you guys. I was thinking about this the other day. Do people who have very, what I would call liberal views as it relates to God's word and their conduct, do you think those people have convictions? They do. They're just different convictions. They want the freedom to choose to do whatever they want to do. That's their conviction. They're just different. Everybody has convictions of something. I promise you, some of those people care more about a sea turtle egg than they care about a womb, a baby in the womb. So people that have liberal views of Scripture have convictions that's just different. We all have convictions. The question is, who determines the standard? Where does it come from? And if God's Word is not the standard, what is the standard? One of the, I was telling Brad the other day, we were talking in the parking lot, and one of the frequent comments I get when I go speak at events is, wow, you use a lot of Scripture, or wow, I really appreciate the way you bring the Word out. I'm like, why wouldn't I do that? That's what I'm going there for, is to open up God's Word to teach His truth. This is the truth that we should live by. It is the truth that should really shape our worldview, especially as it relates to marriage. And guys, I'm going to tell you, in our culture, the church, the divorce rate in the church, and the view of marriage in the church is the same almost as it is outside the church. It's because we have relaxed our view of what marriage is. We don't grasp. And what's going on here is these guys are trying to trap Jesus because they want to see Jesus destroyed. They figure one will make him unpopular with the crowd if he says, you know, you can't divorce if he agrees with Shammai because the crowd didn't like Shammai. They wanted the liberal view. They also thought maybe... Because you know who was ruling at that time? Herod Antipas. What did he do to John the Baptist when he started talking about divorce? Cut his head off. So they figured either we'll get him with the crowd not liking him, or maybe Herod would kill him and get him off the scene. That was their purpose. And so as we look at this today, we're really just, there's one principle out of this whole thing, but there's four, what I call four supporting ideas about it. God calls us to honor marriage as sacred and permanent. What does the word sacred mean? You know what it means to have something sacred? Something sacred to you? That means, it means you treat it 
with this unbelievable value that it's 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 so valuable to you and and permanent was part of it god calls us to honor marriage as sacred and permanent and then it gives four supporting reasons in the first six verses the first one is that god's original design for marriage was one man and one woman period that was his original design for marriage one man and one woman and it's still his design for marriage second god commanded man to stick like glue to his wife in relational loyalty God commanded man, and in this passage, because Jesus quotes the Bible, He commanded man, the command was to man to stick to his wife like glue in relational loyalty. And what that means is, other than Jesus, the most important relationship in the world that we have is with our wife. Now, if you're single, the most important relationship you have is with your future wife. And if you never get married, the most important relationship simply is with Jesus. But God's design was one man, one woman to be relationally glued together with her. In fact, he goes on to give us the next supporting point that God decreed that the man and woman in marriage become one flesh. They are one. They're viewed as one. Even though they're two, they're viewed as one. That's how tight they are. They're seen as one operating unit. And then the fourth thing is God's divine work joins a man and woman in marriage. It is a divine work of God when a man and woman come together in marriage. So one man, one woman, glued together in relational loyalty, one flesh, and it's God's work that brings you together. So let's look at the passage and we're going to come back and we're going to look at what Jesus did in response to the Pharisees. 19 verse 1 when jesus had finished these sayings he went away from galilee and he entered the region of judea beyond the jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there in the mark account it says he taught them also and pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause He answered, have you not read that he he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if it's such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. May God bless his word. 
So the Pharisees ask him, they don't ask him, is it okay to divorce? They say, is it okay to divorce for any reason? Okay, they don't, even, they don't even deal with the issue of divorce. They just say, is it okay to divorce for any reason? They assume that it's okay to divorce, which is a bad assumption. What's our assumption today? When we go into marriage, quite frankly, the marriage in America is seen as more of a social contract than it is a covenant before an almighty God. People flip in and out of it so quick. We go into it, doesn't work out. I'm not, I'm not liking this person too much. It's just too hard. You don't understand, Doug, what it's like. Really? When you bring two strong personalities together, and my wife is strong, there's a lot of rough water, especially at the beginning. And that's, it's, it's hard. Life is hard. Life is just hard, period. But when you get married and you put a ring on somebody's finger and you stand before God, well, I married the wrong person. When you put the ring on, that is God's person for you. That's hard. That's difficult. But just because something's hard doesn't mean that we don't do it. We always like the easy way. But God has a purpose in His original design for marriage. Jesus, what's so great about what Jesus does is He doesn't give His opinion here. He says, have you not read? Where is He taking them? He's taking them back to Scripture. Now, this was a rabbinic tool also because for the, for the Jewish people, the way they kind of weighed stuff is the older the teaching, the more weight it carried. And of course, what carried the most weight was the Torah for them, right? The law. So he says, hey, have you not read? And he goes back and he quotes God in Genesis. And when he quotes the Bible, if they have a problem, who do they have a problem with? Yeah. What are they going to say? And so he, he goes back and he takes them back to Genesis. The reason they were having this whole debate is in Deuteronomy 24... It talks about when a man divorces one lady and marries another, then coming back. He can't come back to that first wife once he does that. There's a law against it. When man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, that's the word that's used there, and he finds some indecency in her. Well, that indecency was the point of contention. What does that mean? Is it adultery? Is it because she burns the falafel, which is like a Jewish burrito? And it could mean anything, is what uh, Hillel said. Shammai said, no, it's only adultery. Unrepentant, persistent adultery. Unrepentant, persistent adultery. God had a remedy for dealing with that. You know what that remedy was? It was death. It was not repentant adultery because otherwise David would have died and a lot of other people. It was unrepentant, persistent lifestyle of adultery. And if that was the case, that person was to be killed. And then what did that do for the woman? It freed her up to marry somebody that would care for her. Part of God's plan was always this complement of a man and a woman. Man in a leadership 
role over the woman, not because he's better, but because of God's design. The woman complimented as a helper. But I want to show you something. I want you to go back with me in Genesis because that's where Jesus goes. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Because this was fascinating. If you're back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Now, wait a minute. Let them, plural, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bird of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So who ruled over everything? Who ruled over the animals? Them. They co-ruled. It was a perfect picture of leadership and a compliment helper there ruling together. No animosity, no insecurity until what? Until Eve usurped leadership and said, I'm going to eat the fruit. She didn't do it with him. She went away from the partnership. She usurped God's design. And what happened is, it started this big snowball of sin rolling throughout time with the terrible, painful consequences that we see today. It's awful. And you know what? God's so merciful because what did he say? He said, you eat that fruit, you're going to die. Did he take them right away? No. He's merciful. He's a merciful God. He told Israel, Israel, when somebody commits adultery, they're unrepentant, they're persistent, you stone them, you kill them, you wipe them out so that that blight is not affecting my community of faith. And Israel stopped doing that. You know why? Because they felt bad for the guy. Because they, they struggled too. You know, I struggle with lust. How can I kill this guy? It could be me out there. Next. So Israel became stiff-necked and they became disobedient. And in the same way that Saul was told to wipe out all the Amalekites and he didn't, the Israelite people stopped killing people who were persistent adulterers. And what happens when that happens? You start having chaos. Because who do they commit adultery with? Normally they commit adultery with somebody else's wife. Creates all kinds of issues. Jesus said in the very beginning, he quotes back this, male and female. He made them. That is the design for marriage. The basic cell is a man and a woman. It's not a man and a man. It's not a man and multiple women. Not a woman and multiple men. Jesus could have made three men and one woman. He could have made two women or three women and one man. But he made one man and one woman and said, this is the base cell of faith community. That's what he said. One man and one woman. And the male is the leader. It says that over in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 9, where Paul talks about male headship, and also in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. And it's because of design, not value. And throughout time, women, women have struggled 
with this desire to rule over their husbands. And the husbands have this desire to squelch their usurping authority. And so it's created some bad situations in a lot of cultures where women are mistreated, they're abused, they're marginalized. Even in our culture, women were pushed down. And there are some people that that their view of what submission looks like is not what God's view of submission looks like. It's a perfect complement. But part of the curse, we'll see this in over in Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's why marriage is hard right there. That's the bottom line. Your desire is to rule over him, but he shall rule over you. And the other reason it's hard is by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Work is hard. Work is hard. You deal with disappointment. You deal with pain. Life is hard. I was just on the phone with a pastor friend of mine. I said, man, I feel like I go from one big pain-filled experience to another, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, whatever. And he said, that's the Christian life. Marriage is hard. It's hard, but, but don't miss this, that Jesus is quoting what God said in His original design, one man, one woman. And then He says that he will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He will stick to his wife. The phrase there actually means stick to the wife like glue. That's what that means. And, and it's talking about relationally. Why does he throw the mother in there and the father in there? Because it says that back in Genesis. But more than that is that there's this loyalty to the spouse that supersedes your child-parent loyalty. To your own parents. That's hard. That's very hard. I remember when I got married to my wife, Lori, my my dad died in the wool, deep southern guy. My wife from New Jersey. That's just like oil and water. That don't mix very well. And I remember when I told dad I was marrying Lori, I, I, I felt like God was, she was the one and I wanted to marry her. He just crossed his arms said, you're going to marry a Yankee? Now, you got to understand, Dave. This stuff didn't happen when we grew up up north. I know. I came down here and they told me I was part of the war of northern aggression. And I didn't even know what they were talking about. Well, that, that's, so, so you see what I'm dealing with, right? So, But I'm also dealing with the fact that I love my dad. My dad's provided for me, cared for me, came to every baseball game I ever played every football game I ever played. He was always my biggest encourager out there on, the, on, you know, when I was trying and doing stuff and took great care of me. So when I got married and my dad had issues with my wife, it caused a lot of problems and a lot of tension for me because I never felt like I could say anything or do anything. I just felt this great tension between my wife who's wounded by the way he treats her over here and my dad who I'm supposed to be loyal to over here till one day I went with my wife to talk to a pastor friend of ours and he pointed this verse out to me and he said, Doug, the Bible is clear. When you get married, you 
Your most important relationship from this point on is to your wife, not your parents. Doesn't mean you're mean to them, but that's the priority in your relationship. And I said, well, what do I do? He said, write your dad a letter and tell him that. And I said, but what if he doesn't respond? He said, it doesn't matter. You still write him in a loving, respectful way. And so I wrote my dad a letter. And I told him, Dad, it's been hurtful the way you've treated Lori over the years. And it's gotten to a point now where we don't even feel like we can come be around you just because it creates so much tension in us. And so if that continues, we won't be able to come see you during the holidays and, and be a part because I just can't do that to Lori anymore. A couple of months later, our phone rang and it was my dad. I'm going to have to call her ID. Lori answered and he said, Lori, and he started crying. He said, forgive me. Forgive me. I was wrong. And, you know, it was a beautiful, beautiful act of repentance on his part. That's hard for a guy who at that time, he was, in, he was raised in a, a culture where you didn't cry. You just you worked hard, and that was the way it was. But it changed their relationship. He treats her like his own blood now. And, but, but there was a point where I had to say to him, Dad, this is my priority. Guys, our relationship with our wives is the most important relationship except for Jesus Christ. Just under Jesus, then it's with your spouse. Loyalty-wise. Well, what does that look like? Well, it didn't look very good in my life early on because it doesn't just mean making sure she's okay with my parents. It means that when I make decisions, I include Lori in those decisions and I talk to her. I don't go to her after I've already made a decision just to get her stamp of approval on it. I gain wisdom from her insight, her perspective. And I didn't do that very well. I just went to her and told her what we were going to do and say, hey, what do you think about this? But I already knew what I was going to do because every time she'd give me blowback, I would argue with her and get really mad because why don't you just agree with me? I didn't see that God had her in my life as a protector, as a compliment, as a partner in ruling over our world of influence the way it was supposed to be. And what does God command the man to? It says, and he said, a man shall leave his father and his mother. He's talking to the man there. It's on us to, to make sure that we understand that loyalty in our marriage relationship, guys. And isn't it funny that out of the Ten Commandments, two of them deal with that. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. How can you say you're loyal to your wife when you want to go sleep with another woman? How can you say you're loyal to your wife when you look at that filth on your device? When you do that, when you do that, you are not being loyal to the one that God brought into your path to complement your life. You're going against His design. He gave you that woman. Yeah, but she won't have sex with me, Doug. You don't know what it's like. We've been arguing and she, I mean, we haven't had sex in three years. Why? 
Have you wounded her so bad that she doesn't want to be with you? Because sex for her is not about the physical act. It's about being intimate and connecting. I didn't get that early in marriage. I didn't get that at all. I still struggle with it sometimes. You know, we all know the crock pot versus the microwave analogy, and we're microwaves most of the time. And what's funny is you hit about 50 and it flips. <laughs> then they become a microwave, and you're like, man, I don't know, baby. I don't know if I can today. <laughs> You young guys laugh, but I'm telling you, you're going to see, you know, it's coming. What? Well, good. That's good. So we hit another, we hit another plateau. But the point is to be relationally loyal to your wife is one of the reasons that guys were supposed to honor marriage as sacred and permanent. There's, there should, Jesus commands us, God commands us to be loyal to them. It's part of his design. And the third reason is in verse 6, it says that the two become one flesh. We are one flesh. An inseparable union, greater together than apart. Permanent, monogamous, with the opposite sex. No longer two, but one. You can't go back. In Deuteronomy 24, it, the, the, what, what they were dealing with, they said, listen, if you divorce this woman and then you marry this one and then you get tired of this one, you can't go back to the original because now you've joined yourself to this one over here. And Moses put that decree because God commanded him to put that decree out. And so that was the law. You couldn't go back once you married another woman and you joined her because you were connected with her. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, not to join yourself with a prostitute because you become one with that immorality. A pagan worshiper who worships sex or who could care less about God's values. He decreed that we're one flesh and the idea is and you got to remember, it was written back then because of technology. We don't look at the Bible the way it was. Back then, if you lost an arm, what could you do about it? You couldn't sew it back on. You couldn't rush to the emergency room and have them sew it back on. You lost an arm, you lost an arm. The idea there is you're one. If you're cut off, if you're cut off, it's like losing an arm. It's like losing a leg. You're one flesh. <clears throat> When you see me, you see my wife, Lori, because we're one. And you know what? Kids today are masters at dividing parents. They're very shrewd, very manipulative. And when you, Lori and I have a rule, in front of the kids, we are always one. Even if we are disagree with what the other partner is doing, in front of the kids, we act as one. And then we deal with it in our bedroom later. We talk about it. But in front, we're always united. When we're in public, we try to be, we joke with each other, but when we talk serious about stuff, I'm going to support her and she's going to support me because we're one. And we'll deal with disagreement later unless there's something sinful about it. And then we deal with it right there. But other than that, if it's just opinion, we lift each other up. I did not do that the first 10 years of my marriage. I can remember being at parties in the Marine Corps and people starting, and my wife would say something, and I would jump on her case disagreeing with her in front of everybody else, humiliating her. 
because I was a, I would go for the throat always. I was very, very um, passionate about the stuff I argued about. And when she disagreed, instead of supporting her right to disagree, even if I didn't agree with it, people would start coming against her and I'd jump on that bandwagon. Wasn't very relationally loyal and certainly wasn't one flesh. Thank God he healed me and is healing me from that. It's a work, and I'm a work in progress. So one man, one woman, relationally loyal, one flesh, and finally God's divine work. God does the work. He brings it together. He allows it to happen. And, and like Brad and I were talking about, this one person who married somebody that they didn't think they ought to marry, it doesn't matter. Once you put the ring on as a believer, you then are married to that person. And the Bible gives us some instruction on what to do if they're not a believer. If they're not a believer and they want to stay with you, guess what? God says stay together. You stay together. Why? Because there's a chance that maybe through your life that person would come into the kingdom and you chose to marry them. Guys, it is so important that we convey this truth to our children, to our grandchildren, to those people around us. It does not matter whether they agree with it. It does not matter whether they buy into it. We have responsibilities. If we are going to be influencers for Christ, we have to teach the truth. This is truth. It's God's Word. And it's been... You know, one of the guys this morning after the teaching said... Why don't we teach this stuff in church? Why aren't pastors teaching this? Because it's uncomfortable. That's why. Because we live in a culture that has basically shut up the church as it relates to marriage because of homosexual unions and lesbian unions. Now we're afraid to say this stuff. But we can't be. It's very clear what he's talking about. He didn't create Adam and Ed. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't create Adam and three women. He created one man and one woman to form the base cell of the faith community. And we heard from Dr. Nikolai, when that doesn't happen, what happens to the culture? And we're seeing it go on around us. And all technology does, listen, this kids, you know, kids today deal with the same struggles that kids 2,000 years ago dealt with. It's just they have technology to accelerate the process a lot of times or to help them get through different things and they can act out worse. But they deal with the same issue. Sin is sin. And if we don't start communicating truth about marriage, you know, and, and, and the issue is not how many people we can affect, we affect those around us. Listen, the only thing that changed a marriage in the Old Testament was adultery. Unrepentant, Flagrant, continuing, persistent adultery that God dealt with with death. Malachi, the last book before Jesus appears on the scene, says God hates divorce. He hates it. So what do you do if you're divorced? What, what, what do you do if you're divorced and remarried? I had one guy come up and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been married a couple of times. What do I do now? And I said, well, you love the wife that you're with now the way that we just talked about. 
God doesn't want you to divorce her and go back. In fact, you can't go back. We know that from Deuteronomy. He doesn't want you to go back. What he wants you to do, oh, is to repent, to turn from having the attitude that a woman is just there to meet your sexual needs, and that's it. That she's a social contract for you. She's part of God's divine design for His faith community to show the world what it looks like to raise up young people and teach them God-ordained values and to grow that faith community so that they shine in the world that's dark around them. That's the purpose. So as we leave here today, the two questions that we've got to ask, again, that first one I said at the beginning, has my view of marriage been more influenced by culture or by God? And then the second question is, in light of God's instruction today, what do I need to do in my own marriage? What do I need to do when I walk out those doors? Brad, will you close our time in prayer today?